So let's talk about music. My name is Sergio Borer, and I'm a composer and a pianist of the classical persuasion. And my um, guest today is Jason Barava, a composer that I know of the classical persuasion too, but uh, we'll find out, you know, more about him. Hi, Jason. How are you today? Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you were able to make it. Um, <laughs> I've been listening to your music. I'm very interested in uh, in the work you have done. You sent me three three samples of your work, and uh, I read once that you do twelve tone music, a modified twelve tone music. In a, I read hmm. it in a review. Interesting. I and I, I I would love to see what review that was. Uh, modified 12-tone. Oh, it's true. I do. I use pretty much, I feel like as a composer in this era, um, everything's available to me. And as a composer who has stayed away from academia for so long, I don't feel like I have to use it in any way that anybody else tells me to. So I certainly have used 12-tone uh, and serial music, uh, but I don't necessarily use it like Schoenberg would have. Um, I, I don't also feel like it has to be um, exactly correct. You know, I, I get to mess around with it because it's my choice. So um, I don't worry too much about what the system is. I just go with what seems to work for what I want to do at the time. Great. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, <laughs> we have, we have, yeah, I've not, I've not been in academia and uh, I, I agree. We have such a palette of uh, sounds available to us that why not use whatever we want whenever we want. So I agree. <laughs> yeah, you know. So uh, this in the last year, I actually with the um, I, I, I one of the other pieces I sent you was the Aunt Jemima um, opera scene. Yeah, uh, and that was the first time I'd ever quoted things like a cakewalk or the yeah. song Dixie. Uh, that's not an era of music I've ever loved, but it was required for what we were doing in the scene. So I I I did some research on cakewalks and I listened to a whole bunch of them and started throwing that all into the mix, uh, but I would definitely not call that a cakewalk opera. Definitely. I, I saw, <laughs> I, I started hearing it and I said, oh, that's a cakewalk. And I, and oh, <laughs> yeah. it was. So uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, uh, it's very interesting to me. Uh, one of the reasons I do this is to, to find out what goes through the mind of other composers. And uh, if I, anything, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, well, I, I want to start with the music. Uh, I, I was very, I liked, I liked all the music you sent me. I want to start with the opera. The opera is very, it's very moving. And uh, do you just, just before we, we hear a little bit of it, we're not gonna hear the 20 minutes of it, but we're gonna hear the oh, gosh, no. five minutes okay. and, um, of the first scene, and which have, has talk and has uh, instrumental with the, this is, this is like a preview of it, right? It's like, it has three instruments or four instruments. But it's, uh, it's actually uh, four. 
right. and uh, and five singers. Uh, right. And we were my uh, my partner on this project is the uh, the sort of amazing artist uh, June Carroll, who is an actor and a writer and a director, and basically can do anything. Uh, she is an amazing <laughs> talent, and she is the reason that that opera has such powerful words. I mean, I didn't write any of those words. I, I couldn't. Um, June is a stunning partner to work with. And June and I were accepted into Overtone Industries uh, first um, uh, original visions program, which uh, in which they present a scene from a new opera and they work on it with you. And so Olan Jones and Fahed, um, they worked with us directly and they gave us this amazing opportunity. And because they couldn't do the live show due to the pandemic, we ended up with this beautiful movie. And uh, it's the luckiest thing ever because we can show our idea now to anybody. Yeah, no, no. Um, and uh, so we were really lucky there. Yeah, and I, I enjoyed it very much. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm, I'm gonna do a, a page for the broad podcast, and then we'll, we'll put all the links so that anybody that is interested can go okay. and, and watch the whole thing. Okay. But what I like to do is. Um, I like to listen to some part of it with you live. Sure. Then, then I'll, then I'll substitute the. You know, you send me the, the the audio track, and I'll substitute it because it's not very well recorded through Zoom. But I'll do that okay. later, and then uh, after we listen to it, we'll talk a little bit about it because okay. that that's what we do in the show. We talk about music. So yeah, uh, I listen to a few of them. Oh. I hope you like them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I listened to Forrest and David because they're two friends of mine. Oh, I see. And uh, so that was fun to hear them talk. I didn't know David did. Um, David Lefkowitz did uh, Barbershop Quartet. And now I really want an audio recording of that. I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here goes, here goes the first five minutes of the opera. Okay. It's a little bit of an introduction. You want to tell us what this is about? Sure. Um, the, my friend June and I, uh, during the early months of the pandemic, we were chatting on Zoom about projects we could work on together. And I made a, a sort, sort of a crack about we should do the story of Aunt Jemima because it was when the pancake company and the syrup company were finally letting go of that image. And uh, and I was being a little bit of a smart ass. And then June thought about it for a minute and said, we absolutely have to do that. Uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we worked on it. Um, First, by doing a lot of research into the roots of the character, which predates the Pancake Company. Um, and it goes well back into the minstrel uh, slave era days of American history. And it's ugly and it's unpleasant and it's difficult. And uh, it's also a, an important story that tells a history we don't necessarily learn. Um, and June has a an amazing way of distilling the pain that this supposedly, uh, I don't wanna say, it's an image that's supposed to be like warm and fuzzy and happy. And it's in fact got an underlying, underlying uh, ugly, disgusting, racist, painful past. Um, and finding the damage that that can do is something that June is incredibly good at. Um, and so for me, I was very um, excited and it's also a little intimidating to attack, attack such a big story. 
um, right. in an opera um, because there's so much we want to do. And, you know, opera sort of encourages you to go wild and do anything you want because it's opera. But that could <laughs> go into some really unproducible places really quickly. So, um, yeah, so the, the spoken text, it's all June. Um, and that is... Um, sort of a prologue uh, and, and, and in the movie uh, version of it, they're in the fields. Um, and, uh, and then it goes straight from there to the, um, the Chicago exposition where the character was first introduced by the Pancake Company. Oh, so that's why the Chicago exposition, I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, Aunt Jemima's uh, first appearance was there and she was the biggest hit of that expo. Oh, and, wow. uh, and Nancy Green, the woman who is in our scene, uh, she was the first woman to take on the role for the Pancake Company. And she had been born into slavery. So uh, she oh, wow. has a direct link to that. And, um, and so the expo was what really started the character in the national consciousness. Cool. All right. So let's hear it. Okay. I'm going to one second. And uh, I, I would add that there is some difficult language in this. Yes, I heard the difficult language. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, you might get a little bit of flack for that, but that's, it's, a, it's a work of art, so that's the context. Yeah. My, my, <laughs> I'm telling you this because my daughters would go after you a little bit. You don't say well, that. Well, um, they but... could go straight to June. She'll talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, when we did the movie, in fact, uh, June and Olan, the director, and the actors who had to do that scene, uh -huh. they spent a lot of time talking about how to make it a safe place for them to do it and to talk about anything that made them uncomfortable so we could work through it and make it an environment where they felt like they were supported while they were doing this incredibly difficult scene. Yeah, it's uh, it's at the very beginning. Yeah. This uh, I I love it. Let's let's share it with everybody. I want you to stop right now and listen to how stupid you sound. How can you possibly I think I that immigrants are bad? Aren't we all
of the United States. The people of the United States. teacher at the University of Chicago who refused to stay in the same room while people are listening to his music. And I've only recently started to recognize how uncomfortable it is to sit there and listen to your own stuff in front of people. I, yeah, I, I know how uncomfortable it is. Yeah. I, <laughs> it, people don't realize it. I, I was, uh, I was at a, at a, at a showing of a part of an oratory of mine and, uh, I just couldn't stay put. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, you know, are they going to sing the note right? Are they getting it? Are they public? You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a thing. Anyway, I want, yeah. the first question I want to ask you is, when you compose, how much of it is intuitive and how much is systemic? Do you, do you have a system or do you go all intuitive or is there a combination or oh it's definitely a combination i uh, i usually try to start with some kind of general concept in the music that um, i think fits what i'm doing i'm of course occasionally i will write a piece that i just sit down and start putting notes in and don't worry about it but with this one especially with a longer form like opera i want to make sure that i've thought through and um really given it some uh, real attention so that 
when it does get done as a whole, it, it makes sense. I see. Um, so, but you know, the funny thing is, as soon as I'm done, I forget what that system was. Um, <laughs> I kind of remember uh, what I worked with on on this. It was funny. I actually wrote the whole thing when I was uh, I had thrown up my back and I was in bed uh, with my oh. computer on my lap. Wow. Um, and uh, the entire scene was written that way. And um, and I had notes everywhere, all over the place on the bed. Um, and all the text and figuring stuff out. Um, a lot of the original work I did was uh, finding authentic cakewalks and other music that was um, going to be referenced. And so there is an actual cakewalk called the Blackville Society cakewalk that I basically just grabbed and did my own thing with. It's similar um, to the Debussy, no? I'm sorry? It's similar to the Debussy cakewalk. I don't know. Oh, it's a different. It's a different cakewalk. Okay, um, I, I, I guess it's a cakewalk. That's what was similar about it. But yeah, okay. No, it's not the same as Gollywogs. Um, and uh, I also took Dixie and uh, messed with it a lot. I did my own five-four version of Dixie, um, and uh, and and that does appear in pieces. And I also took Zippity Doodah. Uh, from Song of the South and messed with it to the point where you don't even know that that's what you're listening to, which is kind of funny because I, I hear it, but unless you point it out, you're not going to know. I see. <laughs> It's interesting. I, you know, when you, when you do a messed up version of something, I don't think people understand how hard it is to make it sound messed up. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah, <laughs> it was actually some of the most fun I had uh, was messing up with Dixie and messing up uh, a Song of the South. So, um, because it, it was it, the whole piece is was very hard emotionally once you started really diving into the text and 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 um, Nancy Green hasn't sung yet in this in the part that we've no. listened, to, but her role is very heartbreaking. And um, yes, I so I, I wanted to have some fun before I, I got diving too far into that. Uh, June and I have big plans for what we're going to do with the rest of the story, and it's not going to be all um, so hard because we're going to do some fun uh, parodies of the commercials over the years. And uh, there's a whole lot of interesting, crazy stuff that happened around this character. So it's going to be a fun show with a very dark message right it's now uh so there was no what i what i meant well in in here you know you were messing up with some tonal stuff right so, yeah. so and and the melody but there was no no rose or anything like that set up for this not so in that you, scene there are yeah. some rows in the in that in that piece uh we didn't hear any of them that i can I remember see. No, I, I didn't see it at this. Uh, I didn't hear it right now, but it's... Uh... I find tone rows to be actually quite freeing, uh, 12 tone rows. Uh, it yeah. really does. Uh, it, it's, it's, if you've created the, the row the right, right way and included the things that you want to include, uh, it really does free me up to really just 
throw some stuff out there and make it all fit and work. Uh, I find it incredibly easy to write that way. I don't want to consistently write that way because I would find that boring myself. But um, when I really need to get a certain feeling and I need to write a lot of music, that's a very easy way for me. I see. My mentor studied with a pupil of Schoenberg uh, in, in Paris. And, uh, and he offered to show me how to do it. And I didn't take him up on it. And I regret it because he's gone now. But yeah, um, yeah but. Well, most of my teachers were students of sessions. And so it's a very different approach. <laughs> I see. But I've read enough sessions to see his influence in their work, which I thought was interesting in their work as teachers, because uh, Roger Sessions, his whole focus was on not uh, putting your style onto your students, but helping your students find their style. And right. that was kind of radical for his time. Yeah, yeah. I, in my talk with David, I asked him the same thing, if he, how he does that he tries to find this the style of the student oh yeah well i'm a former student of david's so uh, oh. i can i can attest to that uh david's a great teacher uh ucla is lucky to have him yeah i'm and he's a good composer too <laughs> oh my gosh so good uh, yeah i i really enjoy david's music and david as a person and david as a teacher he's really He's really quite, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have had the chance to work with him and get to know him. He has a little bit of a reputation for having a hard theory course. But I mean, it's not supposed to be easy, you know? I always right. thought that you know, it's, it, I would rather be challenged than uh, being told, okay, you're doing fine, and then walk out of the class not having learned enough. Uh, we had a, a teacher at the at, at UC Irvine when I was getting my master's. There was uh, Margaret Murata. She always uh, she was a she and I both went to the University of Chicago. But Margaret uh, was a very demanding teacher, and the students shone under that kind of pressure. They really got smarter, and they got uh, they they learned a lot more from being asked to do more than they were used to. Uh, I think that there is nothing wrong with being a tough teacher. Cool. No, and the reason, you know how I found out? I was in, a, in the Midwest Clinic in Chicago this winter, mm -hmm. and I was in a, in a booth about for a group called, and we were, and they were heard, and we were heard, I think it's the name of the group. And because I'm from Mexico, they, they are championing a little bit my music. And um, I was sitting with someone, and we were talking about friendships, and, and, uh, and then she said, oh, I, I went to UCLA. And I said, well, I have a friend in UCLA, David Lefkowitz. And he said, oh, God, you know, I was going to do his theory course, but my friends just told me, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> that's a shame. Probably. Yeah. Who knows? I've, yeah. Yeah. I, I think. But I was, I was a little bit surprised by that. Anyway, it's just. Academia. I will also add, I was never, ever good at theory. Uh, it was, I always got, I, I, I really just could not understand why we were spending all this time on it. Um, I, see. I, I, it just never clicked. And, and honestly, even counterpoint, uh, I didn't really get it until Alan Terziano at UCI taught it as a compositional class rather than as a, let's learn about how counterpoint works. He instead said, let's write things in counterpoint and we'll figure out how to make it all 
happen. And it was the only time after many people have tried that I finally understood how counterpoint worked because it is a compositional tool. It's not an academic tool. Right. I, I understand that very well. I've pulled you completely off the track of Aunt Jemima. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. No, no, no. <laughs> but we are here talking. My, my, my approach is a, it's a chat with someone, you know. Well, yeah, I'm the king of tangents, so um, yeah. I, am, I, I will go on any tangent you like. That's great. <laughs> well, let's let's go now to this uh, to this choral piece that you that you send me. Um, we the I, people. Yeah, it's based on on the on the. It's the preamble the, to the U.S. Constitution. Right. We're not going to hear strictly from the beginning because it starts with people talking among themselves it, it right? starts with people arguing which is how this arguing. country started really yeah um and uh i thought that i had written it in november of 2016 uh right after the oh, presidential wow. election because i needed to do something, something. with everything that was going on in my head and yeah. so i wrote it like the week after um and that's why it starts with fighting and and the fighting does appear again later in the piece because it never ends the fighting and I arguing see. and um and i i i just needed to do something so it's a little bit dark for a piece that's about the founding document of the country but it's it's where i was at the time right and it's for 12 parts right you divide the choir in 12 parts yeah yeah i mean so my assumption was that it would be a a big group but it seems to have worked pretty well with one person on a part okay yeah let's let's uh we'll take it from the end of the of the words and and do a few minutes of it and then we'll talk okay. about it okay okay all right here goes it as a coming as a coming how as a coming, howl, scream. Hope you're hungry. Yep. Pull, bend, straight. Yep. That done broke. Pull, bend, straight. Yep. Pull, bend, straight. Yep. Lay with me, lay with me, lay with me. A nigger, it's a nigger. Yep, it's a nigger. As a nigger. Yep. By my fingers they bleed. They rough, but they love. Love. Eyes. Love. Lips. Where is love? Teeth. Yep. Churins. Where my churins? Where my Yep. Gone. 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 You will never see how beautiful I am.
I I enjoy it very much. I thank you. Um, well, that that's the Hex vocal ensemble under Fahad Siadat, and it's uh, it was a real uh, pleasure to hear them sing that piece. I now that I know this group, I know exactly what I would like to write for them at some point. So they are uh, really amazing singers, and Fahad's a, yeah. a really lovely collaborator. I've, I've worked with two of them, uh, with Ben Lin and with uh, with uh, Pat. Well, she's not Patterson anymore, uh, but uh, I never actually got to meet most of them. I only I met the ones that were in um, in uh, Aunt Jemima because a couple of them were. Oh, um, but uh, this was completely done. Both of those actually were recorded at home. Right. Everybody recorded their individual parts and they were put together. Um, I just happened to go to the Anjama filming, so I got to meet everybody there. So there are there is moments there that you have the 12 in different tones, right? Each one singing a different, a separate note. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah, there is. Um that uh, there's a thing I learned to do a long time ago, which I, I love that I do probably more than I should which is I take a line and then I uh, move everybody, uh, everybody starts on a different beat so that it sort of spreads it out. Uh, so I, um, I, I, it, I started that after hearing an Erky Sven Tier piece at the LA Phil back in the, probably the early nineties or early, I mean, late nineties, early zeros. He's an Estonian composer and Salonen played a piece of his called in Sula Deserta or something like that. And it blew me away. I love that piece to this day, but that's one of the things that I, I took from that was that he had this lovely way of having the strings stagger their entrances on a, every beat. And, and it really creates this lovely sort of cloud of, of, of really interesting stuff. And um, I, I do it a lot. I see. So you, you staggered on every beat, someone else yeah. came in. Yeah. Well, and it's also something uh, Ludoslavsky, uh, I, I, he does that occasionally. He has an interesting thing in, um, I think it's Musique Funebre, where the 12-tone row, mm -hmm. everyone starts um, on, a, on, a, on, the, on a beat, so that in the, in the middle, it's all 12. Well, I see. Everybody's playing, and then, and then as a, so it's, it's this really lovely, and I think beautiful, way of, of putting things together. So that's, that's why I do it a lot. I don't, I don't find 12 tone to be harsh or unpleasant. I find yeah, it to be quite lovely. It is, it can be both, I think. It can be whatever, yeah. you know, you can, you can make it harsh or you can, but this is a lovely rendition of it. And yet at the beginning, it's more, you get the impression more of uh, tension that dilutes, that, that diffuses later, right? Yeah, it does, but it also doesn't diffuse into anything that you would call relaxing. I mean, it, no. it ends pretty no, no, no. dark. No, no, uh, it, it, it doesn't, no, it doesn't, you end up relaxing, but it, it ends up being less. Yeah, actually the, the end got rewritten a lot. Yeah. uh over the years until it was finally time to do the recording and i and it was that was the final re and it's the only one i've been happy with so i'm glad that i kept i kept messing with it 
And I, I, there are pieces that I know exactly how they're going to end and that's easy. And then they're the ones that I have no idea how to finish them off. And I constantly rewrite the end until I can't do it anymore. Uh, and <laughs> this happened to be one that I didn't know how to end. I see. And um, so for this, you did have a row. You, you did write something like that or, or just as it was coming, you were writing it as it was happening. That's a very good question. I honestly don't remember. Um, it was too long ago, exactly how I chose notes. Because uh, that, I mean, too much has happened between 2016 and now for me to recall the, the composition process. It's another one of those uh, phenomena where once the piece is sort of out there, it actually doesn't, I do not remember writing it. Wow. Well, uh, I kind it of makes do. Sense. It makes sense yeah. because the creative process, I think, when you look at something enough, it kind of goes, it kind of vanishes. Uh, um, you've been sort of, you for Sergio, Sergio, what? can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I we hear had me. a little bit of a thing, but go ahead. Are you, are you Hold hearing me? Second. I get my, my internet is unstable. Oh, oops. Um, okay. Are we okay? Oh, there you're back. Hello. Yes. Okay. I'll I'll omit that. I'll I'll let it that out. That, that's not. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But um, we were we were saying about the the thing about when you look at things very much, they kind of they can disappear. That's I think that's why you people have a hard time memorizing a a phone number that you give it to them because mm -hmm. you you say it, you look at it once, and then it's gone, and then it's a hard time to remember. I don't know. It's, I think it's a thing about looking at a thing many times. I think that, that that's how you desensitize bad memories to the point where you can actually, I think, make them almost disappear. So with a piece of yeah. music, it, it doesn't seem to me like strange that you would have a hard time remembering what the hell did I do? <laughs> that and uh, that, so when I do try to revise, I have to be very careful and I try to take my content from a pre stuff that's already in there yeah. because I don't remember how I chose those notes. And so to go back and try to um, recreate that mode, because I get into a composed way. I, I, uh, can you repeat really that? Back I that. lost that. We didn't hear that. Uh, yeah, because sorry. You said you're getting to a internet up here mode. in Santa Cruz is. Oh. Yeah, I um, I, I'll get. Do you hear me? I do now. Okay. Um. What was I saying? You're into getting a composer mode in composing mode. That's where yeah, I so yeah, once once that once that sort of fog has lifted, it's really hard to go back into it and and do revisions or add things um, because it's it's like that whole world has gone away. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, it's it's a very weird process that I mean, even after all these years, I don't fully understand how it happens. Yeah, it's it is it is an interesting process. I. I find that also there are many things that I put into a piece that are not totally conscious 
and when I try to modify later on, then yep. some things stop making sense because they were based on something, because they had a consequence, because there was a logic that was going through the piece. And if I try it to can message, easily fall apart. Yes, it can. So yeah, at least for me, it can, you know, suddenly some yeah. I I I try to stop messing with it once it's done. Once it's recorded, once it's done, I just try to move to something else. That's my 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 education was like that. My my education was not, I didn't have a very demanding teacher. I had a teacher that had me write a lot. And when okay. he didn't like something, he said, okay, write something yeah. else. Write something else. Bring me something <laughs> next time. Bring me something else. Bring me, you know? <laughs> and that's yeah, it. Yeah, I do. And that, I wrote yeah. a lot. <laughs> but, uh, well, I, and, and so that my, my big concern right now is that I have to go back and keep working on Aunt Jemima someday soon. Once I get settled in my new home, I'm going to hopefully be able to, uh, start up again and I got to get back into that mode. I mean, it'll be different, but um, fortunately we have the basic scene. So the next scene can be slightly different and it won't be that much trouble, but um, writing an opera, something that's going to be several hours long. Uh, that is, that's why I try to plan as much as I can beforehand with, uh, with, a, with an, a, something written down so that at least the the overall arc is still there, even if I go somewhere different between when I started and a year later when I'm still working on it. Yeah, I I understand that. I understand that. Now, yeah. I'm going to end this with a question that I usually ask at the beginning, but I forgot with you. Uh, <laughs> and it's how do you get to be a composer? How do you what road what took you here? Okay. Uh, well, I played piano and trombone as a kid, and in, I was in band in Pittsburgh, New York, and not really connecting. It was a tiny little um, elementary school, I mean, high school band. We didn't do much because we didn't have really the, inst the, the instrumentation for it, um, but I would occasionally get into things like the all-county band and playing in a big ensemble. I started to get this idea that this was exciting. Um, and so I kept playing trombone in college and then all of a sudden I was playing Mahler and Ravel and all these interesting composers and, um, and I just kept playing it. And then by the time I graduated from Occidental College, uh, I realized I should have been a music major, even though I hadn't been one. Uh -huh. And, uh, so, uh, I went to the university of Chicago to study music. And they had a program called the graduate student at large where you're not in a degree program, but you get a transcript. So I did the basically the equivalent of an undergraduate music major there. I see. And fell into composition by accident. Going to music history or something like that. And a group of us took composite composition and uh, we just started putting on our own shows. And I fell in love with it. And ever since then, I haven't stopped. That's great. That's that's a great story. What was your major when you were doing college? I was a Latin American studies major. All right. Yeah, you know, <laughs> one of the composers I interviewed was a geologist. You know, <laughs> a geology major. You know, it's yeah. The road to music is not that predictable. And as my friend uh no. Jay Terry Frank Jay Terry told me once, you know, nobody has a map Nobody has, nobody knows how to make a career in the arts. It's, it's, oh gosh, it's, no. 
<laughs> Everybody, I, I still don't, honestly. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm learning myself. So anyway, this has been a very pleasant uh, talk. And yeah, it's I nice hope, to talk to you. And I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I did. it was very informative for me. And uh, I want to thank you very much. And th th that's all, folks. All righty. <laughs> well, thank you, Sergio. It was a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.